Section 15 of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Prompter's Daughter by Anna Cora Mawat. Chapter 6. When Dr. Weldon visited Robin Trueheart's humble lodgings that day, he found Tina in heavy sleep, but her sharp, quick breathing, the crimson spot on either cheek, betokened the presence of a high fever. The doctor's whispered inquiries and his light touch upon her throbbing pulse aroused her. She opened wide her large eyes, now shining with unusual luster, but they looked vacantly around. Her mother bent tenderly over her, but no answer came to her anxious questions. Then suddenly the child raised herself up on her pillow and broke out in song. The liquid notes rang through the chamber as she warbled. Where the bee sucks, there suck I. In the cowslip's bell I lie. Susan no longer wept or trembled. Her bending, reed-like nature rose up strong and firm under the heavy pressure of this trial. Her tears were petrified by the greatness of her affliction. With unfaltering step, she followed the physician from the chamber. Doctor, will she live? Will my child live? was all she said, and the words were uttered in a calm tone. I trust so, was his evasive answer. The mother's fear-quickened perception construed the reply aright. At that moment the child's voice again struck on her ear. Under the blossom that hangs on the bough, that hangs on the bough, that hangs on the bough, sang Tina. The day before, Susan would have thought it impossible that she could shudder at the sound of that delicious melody. She returned to the bedside of the child, who now sank back, oppressed with sleep, now started up, murmuring snatches of aerial song. Ding-dong dell, ding-dong dell. She repeated that burden, the knell sang by the sea-nymphs, over and over, until Susan at last felt as though the whole universe was filled with that one haunting sound, that melodious knell. She heard it when the child's lips were mute. Night and day it echoed in her ears, and drowned all other tones. The accident occurred on Monday, and through the long week Robin had to fulfill his duties at the theater as usual. Susan kept sleepless vigils beside the couch of the child. Her engagement was, of course, relinquished, with it her salary and Tina's. It was Mr. Higgins' rule not to pay salaries to actors who were indisposed or disabled. If he were to do that, he argued, his company would always be dangerously ill. He would keep a hospital, not a theater. It was true that Tina had so won her way in some accessible corner of his cold heart that he experienced a strong desire to make her a solitary exception to this stern law. It was not without a secret pang that he decided against an act of liberality, as injurious to his theatrical discipline, but he quieted his conscience by sending the mother a message of condolence, accompanied by a guinea. With this diminution of their weekly salary and the great increase of expenses consequent on Tina's illness, the situation of the Trueharts would have been one of fearful privation, 
but for the beneficence of strangers who were interested in the child's public career not a few noble ladies dispatched their maids or footmen to robin trueheart's dwelling with messages of sympathy money dainties for the sick fine linen for the dressing of the little girl's burns etc etc one thoughtful lady furnished tina with a small elastic bed a special comfort to the suffering child tina had been accustomed to share the couch of her parents and so great was their fear of disturbing her that until this welcome gift arrived neither father nor mother since the night of that fatal accident had lain down a few benevolent ladies not content with entrusting the mission of charity to their domestics called themselves but these visits were a tax upon susan's patience rather than a consolation to her it distressed her to answer the numerous queries of curiosity or kindness she needed all her thoughts all her time for her child the members of the company were not behindhand in their warmly tendered sympathy their proffers of assistance in ministering to the youthful patient but susan would not allow any one to share her maternal duties she could not bear her child to receive a cup of water from the hand of another in a few days the fever abated and tina's consciousness returned though she was too feeble to speak the grateful smile which repaid an office of love brought sunshine back to the mother's heart meantime miss armory learned from the public journals that her favorite pupil's life had been in danger at first she hesitated about visiting the lodgings of a poor actress one of that class she had been taught to condemn but true charity conquered the scruples of an unworthy prejudice as she opened the door of the little apartment tina uttered an exclamation of delight and stretched out her arms towards the young preceptress oh i knew you would come she feebly murmured miss lucy that is my dear mother and she added in a whisper her eyes filling with tears as she recalled the scene at the sunday school she's not shocking but good heavenly good miss armory greeted susan cordially and told her that she had come to assist in tending the beloved little invalid susan could not decline her services for she knew that they would be a welcome to the child but a jealous pang shot through her heart you look very much worn out miss trueheart remarked the young girl in a tone of sympathy do not think of me answered susan now that i dare hope that my child will recover i shall have all the strength that i need from that time miss armory came daily spent many hours with her former pupil the kind-hearted girl read to her conversed with her amused her susan sat silently by it was not easy for her to talk to strangers at any time but now she shrank more than ever within herself she remembered miss armory's prejudices against the stage but had not sufficient strength of character to enable her to combat them in the most distant corner of the room half concealed by a friendly window curtain sat the mother hiding her emotions when she found her place occupied by another through those long daily visits she chid her own heart for its discontent and repeated internally over and over again my child is happier when miss lucy comes what matter for me at the end of a month tina was pronounced out of danger but it was obvious that some time must elapse before she could resume her profession the liberal donations now ceased 
those formerly received had been expended robin's family had only his small salary to depend upon this could not meet the weekly outlay susan found herself unable to purchase the expensive medicines ordered by the physician from that moment she said mentally i must work again oh what a heavy heart i shall carry to the theatre but i must work that my little one may not want mrs gildersleeve offered to watch beside tina during her mother's absence the good landlady's presence was seldom needed for miss armory came regularly at the hour for rehearsal and remained until susan's return in the evening before the latter left for the theatre miss lucy was again at her post the first morning that susan re-entered the theatre when she stood upon the stage and cast her eyes up to the spot where tina had been suspended almost in the embrace of death her blood suddenly congealed her pulses ceased to beat and the place swam and then grew dark she tried to take a step towards robin but fell senseless to the ground she had fainted for the first time in her life when consciousness returned she found herself lying on the green-room sofa the same sofa on which tina had been conveyed to her lodgings robin supported her head and a crowd of actors and actresses were kindly ministering to her ah sue i felt just the same when i looked up to that fatal place but cheer up wife for our birdie is spared to us whispered her husband and susan was comforted and in a short time declared herself able to return to the stage robin seated her on a chair by one of the wings and returned to his station at the prompter's table inadvertently he had chosen the very spot where she had sat and watched the rehearsal of pizarro when tina had first enacted cora's child how well she remembered that day and her own terror at the comparatively slight peril in which her child was then placed she thanked heaven that the veil of the future had not been lifted and no presage of a more terrible evil had entered her soul the call-boy's summons aroused her from her reverie and with a slow staggering step she walked through her trifling part another month passed and still another and at the end of a third month tina once more breathed fresh air and beheld the blue sky at her young teacher's invitation she was conveyed in an easy carriage to kew gardens little knew the poor child actress of the wondrous beauties of nature she had never dreamed of such a paradise as these gardens revealed to her the memorable mammoth grapevine the extensive conservatories the picturesque shrubberies the magnificent old trees the profusion of gorgeous flowers all these were a marvel the flowers to which her young eyes had been too well accustomed were fabricated of bright tissue paper or coloured cambric the cut woods were manufactured of canvas bedaubed with impossible trees the stage groves and gardens she had nightly moved among were things of paint and glare and gaudiness she saluted nature with bursts of joyous greeting a loving recognition though nature had heretofore been known only through rudely painted image the child almost flew about drinking in the balmy air basking in the sunshine kissing the flowers which she was not permitted to pluck now lifting up her arms and sweet face in mute wonder her ecstasy now gushing forth in song her long-lost buoyancy of spirit 
for the moment restored vented itself in music it was only a short period since she had been able to walk again and generally the effort of taking a few steps caused her pain but she was conscious of neither weakness nor suffering as she darted about over the lawn until the buttercups had showered her feet with yellow dust and she bade miss armory look at the golden slippers the flowers had given her at last she grew weary from the unwanted exercise and lay down with her head resting on miss lucy's lap beneath the shade of a branching oak catching glimpses of the sky through the wind-shaken foliage and singing without pause singing as birds sing from that gleefulness within which turns to melody after they had passed several hours in this manner the young sunday school teacher warned her companion that it was time to return but tina could not tear herself away from this newly found elysium she pleaded for a few more moments and still a few moments more until the trees began to cast long shadows and the roseate light grew gray and the perfumed air became slightly chilly then she was reluctantly conducted back to the carriage her exuberant spirit sustained her a while the excitement lasted but a reaction succeeded its removal that night the fever returned with increased violence no words of blame were uttered by tina's parents but miss armory could not forgive her own unconscious imprudence her attention her devotions were redoubled she was now seldom absent from the child's couch she literally spent her days at robin truehart's lodgings in a few weeks the young sufferer rallied those beautiful gardens were forever a haunting memory stored up in her mind but she did not ask to see them again she seemed to be aware that her joy had not been temperate she had been intoxicated by the exhilarating air the pastoral sights and sounds she had reveled in them until the golden rule of moderation was forgotten i must not run any more risk or ask for any more indulgences i must get well and go to work again she would often say how ill my poor mother looks if i could only work and let her rest the anxiety of the last few months had wrought an alarming change in susan cheeks were daily growing more hollow her weary eyes were deeply sunken and circled with dark rings her form always slight was becoming emaciated its watchful eyes saw the sad transition and there was a mysterious admonition in his heart a foreboding of ill which he could not stifle he marked how wearily she went through her allotted duties to what a faint key her voice had sunk how uncertain her steps had become she never complained and to his tender inquiries always answered that she was well she did not suffer she was very happy was not her child recovering she was so blessed in all things that she asked of her heavenly father no added blessings she only prayed to become worthier of receiving those she enjoyed robin gazed upon her earnestly her cheek was so very pale her eyes so dim her whole mien pervaded by such an air of languor that he could not help saying then you are not suffering or grieving sue you would not hide it from me if you were hide it no robin i have never concealed anything from you in my life and it was true 
Within her guileless heart there were no secret chambers, no curtained depths, which veiled the innermost sanctuary from her husband's eyes. Unlike as were these twain in all external appearances, there was a similitude of soul which daily joined them more and more closely together. The silver links of perfect sympathy had never been broken or even jarred. The eyes of both were fixed on the same goal. The feet of both walked in the same path. All their thoughts were in unison. Their faith was planted on the same rock. Their knees bowed to the same God. Theirs was the union of two minds whose strong affinity drew them into one. Not that their love was a dull, unvarying stream, gliding in smooth monotony. It passed through soft gradations into love's different seasons, every one more perfect than the other, seasons that are exquisitely described by one of our country's minstrels in these lines. The springtime of love is both happy and gay, for joy sprinkles blossoms and balm in our way. The sky, earth, and ocean in beauty repose, and all the bright future is couleur de la rose. The summer of love is the bloom of the heart, when hill, grove, and valley their music impart, and the pure glow of heaven is seen in fond eyes, and lakes show the rainbow that's hung in the skies. The autumn of love is the season of cheer, life's mild Indian summer, the smile of the year, which comes when the golden ripe harvest is stored and yields its own blessing, repose, and reward. The winter of love is the beam that we win while the storm scowls without from the sunshine within. Love's reign is eternal, the heart is his throne, and he has all seasons of life for his own. G.P. Morris End of section 15